0: Well, good morning. It's uh, great to see you. Thank you for joining us here for our last bit of our Christmas series. You know, I love that song that we just sang, the first Elg. walks through the entire Christmas story. In fact, we're singing the scriptures that we're actually going to be covering in our message today. I love just singing that kind of whole Christmas story. Now what's also awesome is we get to experience also the Christmas story in a drive-through fashion. Hopefully you've been able to check out Christmas in Hercules here at Valley Bible Church and we want you to do that. I know my kids loved it. I know your family is going to love it. If you haven't done it, you only have four days left. Four days left to make sure you experience that here on our campus starting at six o'clock. Four more days will end On December 23rd. Well, like I said, we're closing off our Christmas series, and before we get to our passage today in Matthew chapter 2, what I want to do is I want to ask you a question. And it may sound like an odd question to ask in a Christmas message, but but let me ask you the question as well, and you'll see kind of how it's going to tie in to our message today. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever been found out? Have you ever been found out Have you ever been found out to be an imposter, to be something that you're actually not? Think about it like this. Have you ever been found out when you were trying to fool others? Maybe when you were a kid, you were going to go to a new school. And in going to this new school, you were excited because you could start a, a new reputation. And may, maybe at your, your old school, you were that, that wimpy kid. You weren't a, a tough kid. And, and, and anytime you got hurt, you would cry. But now that you're at this new school, you're thinking to yourself, okay, this is the time. This is the time to, to gain a new reputation. And so you start telling some stories. Maybe you exaggerate a little bit. And these stories make you seem like a really tough guy. And everything's going well until you get hit in the face with a dodgeball and you start crying in front of the whole gym. And now everybody has found out that you're not tough, that you're not a tough kid. Or maybe have you been found out, not when you were trying to fool others, but when you were trying to fool yourself? I know I've done this. When I was 22 years old, I moved to Louisville, Kentucky to go to grad school. And as I'm on campus at this graduate school, there's a gym there, and I see these guys uh, about to start a pickup basketball game. And I played basketball when I was in school, and I was an average player. I would come off the bench in a game, and I figured my youth and my skill would make me easily competitive with these, what I considered, country boys. I thought I had an advantage on them. What I didn't realize is that in Kentucky, babies aren't given pacifiers when they're born. They're given basketballs. You see, in Kentucky, I was in deep basketball country. And it only took about a couple times up and down the floor for me to realize that I was an imposter. I found myself out. I was not as skilled as I thought I was. I was not a basketball player like these guys. Now, I bring this up because we can do this spiritually. Spiritually. We can do this spiritually. We can can fool others, and we can fool ourselves. We can convince ourselves that we're following Jesus when we're not. We can convince others that we're following Jesus when we're not. And I think that happens a lot this Christmas season. I think it happens a lot during these kind of holiday seasons. You see, because during this season, Jesus gets a lot of attention. He gets a lot of our attention. But just because there's more attention does not mean there's more devotion. Just because we pick up the scriptures and read the birth story, the the Christmas story, just because we kind of sing some songs about Jesus during this season, and he gets more of our attention, it doesn't mean that he's actually getting more of our devotion. You see, in our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew's going to tell this story, a very shocking story, and in this story, there's going to be kind of a great reversal. A great reversal. That people that we would think that look like genuine followers of Jesus Christ are actually going to be imposters. And people who we would never expect to follow Jesus are actually going to be authentic followers of Jesus. Really, Matthew is going to tell a story that's going to give us a lot of clarity to some of the well-known characters of Christmas. And my prayer this Christmas is that God would grant the same type of clarity to you. So let's go to our passage in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. And as you're turning there and as you're getting there, what I want to do is kind of summarize the, the main idea of our message today. And I think the main idea of what Matthew is trying to get across to us in the second chapter of his Gospel If we're going to summarize Matthew's idea, I think it's this. So if you're going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. The big idea of today's message is this. Christmas makes insiders outsiders and outsiders insiders. Christmas makes insiders outsiders and outsiders insiders. We're we're going to see this in our passage. People that we would think are definitely insiders are actually going to be Outsiders And people who we would think are definitely outsiders are actually going to be shown to be insiders. There's going to be this great reversal. So, so follow with me. Follow with me in Matthew chapter 2, starting with verse 1. First, we're going to be introduced to those that look like outsiders. Verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2 says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king... Behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Well, how long after that first kind of birth story? How long after Jesus was born? We're not certain but there's several kind of indicators here that place us, or place give us a good sense of time. First off, we're going to see later that these wise men or magi that have come from afar have traveled a distance that took them two years to cover. About two years to cover because we're going to be told they saw the star about two years ago. So they have come this far, so maybe their journey was about two years long or close to that. It's kind of an approximation because we don't know if the star showed up right when Jesus was born or sometime after or before. We don't know. But their journey took them a long way. So Jesus is conceivably two years old, probably at max. So he's probably an older child, or at least he's a child and not a baby anymore. In fact, Matthew uses a different term for Jesus. He calls him a child he doesn't use a term uh, like baby, so Jesus is probably a, a, maybe a couple months old at least. We also know Matthew's going to use a different term uh, for the place of lodging that Luke uses one term, and now Matthew uses the term house. So it sounds like they're not in this temporary dwelling anymore; they're in a fixed place. So it appears that that Jesus is probably a couple months old at least. So, as Jesus is this old, these wise men come. They come to him, and it says they come from the east. They come from the east. Now, why is that significant? You see, as the readers, first century readers of Matthew would kind of walk through this story, they would hear that term, the east, and it wouldn't just mean direction to them. It's not just indicating a a, a mark on a compass to them. See, the east was known as the place of punishment. The east was known as the land of exile. God's people, when they lost the land in the Old Testament, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they had split because of a a civil war. They kind of broke off. So now the nation of Israel, God's people, were were Israel and Judah, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And, And both times God would judge his people for their sin. The northern kingdom first, and then the southern kingdom. And each time, he would bring an army from the east, and they would defeat the northern tribes and the southern tribes and take them back. So the land of the east was the land of exile. It's where God's people were forced out because of their sin, it was the place of punishment. So these people coming from the east are coming from the land of exile, they're coming from the place of punishment. This is the place where they practice things that that aren't God-honoring, where they worship false gods. Even the title of these men, it's translated for us as wise men, but the term is magi. Who are these guys? Wise men may be somewhat misleading to us if if we're just experiencing it for the first time. It's not that these guys are just intellectuals. That's not the idea. The term magi, translated here as wise men, is actually speaking about people who are magicians, we would call it, or, or, or astrologers, people who interpreted dreams. They were very familiar in, 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 in practices that, that weren't considered orthodoxy to the Jewish people. So you have these magi who would interpret dreams, they would look at the sky, and they would, they would make projections based on the stars, and they would give political advice. Now, magi or wise men were, were, were very popular in, in Western Asia during the first century. So many different countries would have wise men or magi, people that would would give consultation and give advice to rulers who would interpret their dreams and, and look at the sky to tell their future. This is a very common class. But these guys, these guys are outsiders. Yes, they're professionals at what they do, but their profession is not something that God gives a thumbs up to. It's not something that we see the Scriptures approve of. In fact, when Daniel is in Babylon, one of those captives from the land of Judah, when he is taken away and he is in Babylon, he finds these magi, these wise men, as competitors to him. And he even mocks them. He says they are foolish to trust their practices. He says that they are not worthy to give counsel to the king. The prophet Isaiah would say the same exact thing. Jeremiah, another prophet in the Old Testament, would condemn the practice of astrology, what these magi were experts in. He would condemn it as a foolish practice. So in the Old Testament, these guys were not seen uh, in a very good light. But the same thing is true In the New Testament. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13 actually encounters a magi, a magician. He's a false prophet, he's a false Jewish prophet. And Paul has some very strong words for this guy in Acts chapter 13. He calls him a a fraud, he calls him a son of a devil. And then Paul curses him with blindness. So just think about all of that kind of context from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And yet we have these magi coming from the East, these professional astrologers, these ones who practice things that are unorthodox, that are condemned by the prophets, that are not encouraged by God's spokesmen. These magicians who we see some in their company would be later condemned in the New Testament. These guys come from the east, the land of exile, the place of punishment, and they want to do what? They want to worship. They want to worship the king of the Jews. This is so incredibly odd. Who are these guys? Where are they from? A first century Jewish reader wouldn't get very deep into chapter two without having to put down the book and say, there's no way this is true. These are outsiders. These are the bad guys. Why would they want to worship the king of the Jews? Now, it's hard to say where these men are from, and we just really have to speculate about their history. But we can tell they know something about the Old Testament. They know something at least about Judaism. They know something of the Jewish people. So these men that have come from afar are familiar with Jews. They're familiar with Judaism. They care about who is the Jewish king. But they're also not informed as to where the king would be born as the Jews would call him, the Messiah, the hero they've been waiting for, the king that would follow after the line of David, the king that would bring in God's kingdom forever. They refer to him as king of the Jews. The Jews would refer to him as Messiah, but they have a question. Where is he going to be born? Now, any Jew could tell that answer right away from prophecy, could tell you where Messiah, where God's coming king would be born. But these men do not know. So they're familiar with Judaism but they're, they're not probably practicing Judaism. So they kind of have this, this kind of um, they're kind of walking the line, if you will. They kind of have their foot in two different worlds. They're, they're curious. They don't have all the answers. Yet they come to worship the king. Now this term worship we could read it as, well, maybe they just want to give the king some respect. They're wise men, they're astrologers, and so uh, they're, they're politicians, and so they hear about somebody rising to power. This is just a political play. So they're, the, they're just there to honor this new royalty. You can take the term worship to mean that. But I don't think that's what Matthew is trying to communicate to us. I don't the reason is, is because when Matthew uses that term, worship, it's much more serious for him. It a a, 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 a denotes a more stronger action. It's talking about serious adoration here. Every other time he uses that term, it's not to mean one of just respect. There's something serious going on here. And I think what we'll see is the next character that's brought in is these wise men. Who, who, who for no reason that we can calculate are coming to worship the king, these wise men are then compared to people who should worship, and yet they don't. And I think Matthew's point is these outsiders are actually the insiders. These guys who we would think would never worship. I mean, these wise men would, would never be the guys in the yearbook photo that says, most likely to worship Jesus. They would not be those guys. They would not be those candidates. And yet they're here to worship the king. And then what Matthew does is a wonderful storyteller, bringing in all these kind of historical details and arranging them very strategically. I think what he's going to do is set up this really interesting contrast that creates this kind of reversal. He's going to say the outsiders worship, but these insiders do not. And so I think his point is these guys are authentic worshipers of this newborn king. Look at verse three. Look at this insider who is actually going to show himself to be an outsider. This is the first character that Matthew is going to contrast the Magi with. Verse three. When Herod the king. Interesting. Do you see that? Herod the king. He's going to be called the king twice. Why is that interesting? Because these wise men are looking for a king. Well, there already is a king. There's King Herod. Well, maybe these men are looking for Herod's son. It says they're looking for the king who has been born king of the Jews. So they're not talking about somebody who is going to become king. They're talking about a king who already has right to the throne by birth. So maybe what they're looking for is Herod's son. Maybe Herod has a birth in the family. These wise men do not know, but they encounter the present king of the Jews. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him too. So who is this guy? Herod. Well, he kind of looks like an insider. It, It says he's the king. King of what land? He's the king of Judea. He's the king of the Jews. He wears that title by Roman appointment. And he professes Judaism which wasn't necessarily popular in the first century world in Rome. Especially to have political power by the Romans to profess Judaism wouldn't be something that was very common. Yet Herod has done this. He has power, and yet he professes to follow after the Jews. He's a great builder. He's the one who rebuilt the Jewish temple And his temple was so large, so big, so grand, that it was even better than Solomon's temple. The great King Solomon, the Jewish king in the Old Testament, who would build God's temple. And and it was incredible and amazing. Well, Herod's temple was so much better. So this guy looks like an insider. I mean, if anybody is going to be excited about Christmas, if anybody is going to be excited about God's son being born... If anyone's going to be excited about the coming king to bring God's kingdom, surely wouldn't Herod be a likely candidate? He looks like an insider. But he's not. He's not. And Christmas gives him this clarity. Sure, he paraded himself as a follower of Judaism. Maybe he convinced his that he was a follower of Judaism. Maybe he convinced others that he was a follower. But when Christmas happens, he's shown not to be a follower. He's shown to be an imposter. This insider is actually an outsider. Look at how this becomes very, very clear to us. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, that a king had been born, and he doesn't have a new child at the time. Now he feels threatened. A new king being born. It's understandable that Herod would be nervous, you see, because Herod's not Jewish. He's not after the line of David. He's not in the royal succession. He has no right to the throne. He has no right to be called king of the Jews. And now he is hearing about another king well, now he feels threatened. Now he feels challenged. Look at how it describes it. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Troubled. That's a very polite, I think, translation, but that word is much stronger than troubled. It means disturbed. It means terrified. He does not like this news. He is not a fan. He is not applauding. He's not hitting the like button on his news feed on Facebook. He is not okay with this news of a king. He did not receive this news well, which actually makes sense from what we know of Herod from history. From history, we know that Herod was paranoid. Later on in his rule, which would be about this time, because he's going to die a couple years after Jesus is born. So he's kind of an old ruling authority at this point. And we know from history, the older he got, the more paranoid he got. The more worried he was that people were trying to take his life and take his power and take his throne. We even know that he killed some of his wives. He killed some of his sons thinking that they were trying to grab at power. We know the Roman emperor at the time actually said these words, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. What was he saying there? To be a family member of Herod was a dangerous thing because he was paranoid. Always wondering if there was a threat to take his throne. So now the news is delivered to this man, this paranoid man, and it says he's troubled. But but, but he tells us that he wants to worship. I mean, this is a man who built the temple. This is a man who inquires of the scribes, well, where is the Christ going to be born, the Messiah, this King of the Jews? Isn't his inquiry uh, genuine? He says he wants to worship in verse 8. But look down at verse 16. We see his true plot. In verse 16, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and all the region who were two years old and under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Clearly, this guy was lying. He didn't really want to worship the Christ. He was threatened, and now he said, i got to kill this king, because I'm the king. Now, seeing Herod as a false insider, as an imposter, may not be that shocking to you. If you're familiar with the story, you may feel like, yeah, I kind of already knew that one, but there's another one. There's another imposter that may be missed by us, Because it's only mentioned very quickly. But I think it's a point that Matthew does want to make. Go back again to verse 3. There's another insider who is actually an outsider. And is just as bloodthirsty and brutal and violent as Herod. Look at verse 3. It says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. And all Jerusalem with him. Just a small mention from the writer Matthew. What is he doing there? And all Jerusalem with him. What does he mean by that? When Matthew uses this term Jerusalem, he's oftentimes referring to kind of the, the political powers or the religious power structure in Jerusalem, in the city center of God's people. He's talking about the religious leaders who dominated the city. Many appointments to leadership were actually made by Herod himself. So it's no surprise that they share their leader's sentiment towards this new king. All Jerusalem are troubled. These religious leaders are troubled. Now this is shocking. Why are they troubled? I mean, Herod does not seem like a serious uh, follower of God. And we know from history that he is not. He has a very checkered past, and he was not beloved by the Jews very much. But all of Jerusalem, the religious leaders, the ones who studied the scriptures, why would they be troubled as the scriptures are being fulfilled right before their eyes? Why would they be troubled? Why would they respond? Like Herod. This is a theme that Matthew is going to continue to build on. And it's probably one of the most surprising themes in all of the Gospels. That Jesus would be rejected by his own people. That those you would think are waiting for him. Those you would think that are clear insiders. Those who would want and desire and aspire to have Jesus as their king would actually be the ones who would force his crucifixion. Right? Look, at, look at how this just develops in the Gospel of Matthew. Go, go to chapter 8. Chapter 8, Jesus tells a very interesting story. He is responding to a Gentile's faith. This is somebody who's non-Jewish. And he responds to this Gentile's faith. And look what he says in Romans, or sorry, in Matthew chapter 8. It says in verse 10, and said, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who follow him, Truly, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus blown away by the faith he sees in this non-Jewish person. And then it causes Jesus to tell this very interesting story. Verse eleven, he says, and I tell you, many will come. Listen to these words: many will come from east and west. Where did the magi come from? The east. Jesus saying, many outsiders are going to come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. These outsiders are going to come in and sit with the mighty men of faith. These patriarchs, these pillars of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But look at verse 11. While the sons of the kingdom, those who think they're insiders, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, they will be weeping and gnashing their teeth. Wow. Wow. What an interesting development there. What is Jesus saying? Some outsiders are going to come in. And some people who think they're insiders are actually going to be outsiders. This continues to develop for not only some Jews, but specifically mentioned for those in Jerusalem, these religious leaders. In Matthew chapter 21, we see this when Jesus actually comes into Jerusalem Listen to these very interesting words of how the people of Jerusalem, probably these religious leaders, how they respond. Verse 10 of Matthew chapter 21. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. This doesn't mean that they were excited. This doesn't mean they were ready to have a parade. This means that they are concerned, they're agitated, they're disturbed by this. That's what that term means. The term has a reference to earthquakes, things are shaking. And they're not comfortable with things shaking. They don't like this. Jesus would mourn over this idea. Look at Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Look at Jesus' response, and he uses the term again, Jerusalem. Again, I think he's talking about the religious leaders in that city center. He says to Jerusalem, this city, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have I gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wing, and you were not willing? Do you see the animosity that grows? I mean, we're following this kind of thread that there's there's conflict. They're not excited about the birth. Of Jesus, They're troubled just like Herod. And then it grows and the animosity grows and the conflict grows and the tension grows. And Jesus says, hey, some of you guys are going to be outside the kingdom. You're not going to be in heaven. You're going to be outside forever where you'll weep, where you will gnash your teeth. You'll be away from God. And then when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, they don't like it. Oh, here's that troublemaker again. And then Jesus mourns over the city mourns over these religious leaders who search the scriptures and yet cannot see that he is the Savior of the world. And it's this mob who will cry out for Jesus' crucifixion and who will take full responsibility for his death. Look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 24. So when Pilate saw he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, this is the mob in Jerusalem. He took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, "I'm innocent of this man, this man's blood. See to it yourselves and listen." And all the people answered, "His blood be on us and our children." What's remarkable is these apparent insiders who are clearly outsiders are actually the ones who complete the plot. Of Herod. Herod, this, this, this bloodthirsty king, this paranoid king who saw Jesus as a threat, who looked like an insider, but clearly was an outsider. He tried to kill Jesus as a child, but was unable to. He dies when Jesus is just a boy. But the rage against Jesus lives on past his death. And the people of Jerusalem pick it up. They take the bloodthirsty plot and they actually are able to crucify Jesus. These insiders are imposters. They're outsiders. We don't see the full plot in Matthew chapter 2. But we see kernels of it. We see the start of it. Right? They're troubled just like Herod. But also look at another clue that I think Matthew gives us, showing how this hatred for Jesus is going to grow in these people, in these religious people, in the people of Jerusalem. Look at how interesting it is in verse 5 when they answer Herod's question. He asks them, hey, where is the Christ going to be born? In verse 5 they say this, and they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. Easy. It's not shocking they gave this answer. This was known. They say, look, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means are least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Easy answer. Now notice what doesn't happen. It says, then Herod summoned the wise men, secretly ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem. Wait a second here. What's missing? Why are the Magi the only one who go? Why are the wise men the only one who go to Bethlehem? Why aren't these religious elite, these scribes, these scholars who know the answer, why are they sitting there doing nothing? Their apathy is very telling. You have these foreigners, these foreigners, these outsiders These astrologers, these guys who look at the sky and try to determine the will of the gods, these guys go to worship the child, and yet the ones who know the exact destination, who have a perfect GPS location on the Messiah, do nothing but give an answer and then leave it there. Isn't that interesting? I think this confirms again Matthew's point that these insiders are actually outsiders, and he'll further develop that plot as the gospel goes on. These guys are imposters. Now, Matthew's going to end the accounts of the wise men going back to them, back to the outsiders. And he's going to show their act of worship. And I, again, what I think he's doing here is he's showing this very intense reversal, this shocking reversal, this, this contrast, this easy black and white image. He's going to say, these guys look like insiders, but they're outsiders. But these guys who are outsiders are actually insiders. Look at how he closes off the story in the account of the wise men, verse 8. And he sent, to them, or sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. For when when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Let's just stop here. This is a very interesting star. The star rising, that's not a crazy phenomenon. But this, in verse 8, says that the star rests, it stops, it places itself over where the child was. Now, the distance between Jerusalem and Bethlehem where Jesus is born and where they were first at with King Herod is only like seven miles. How can a star give you directions, exact directions, turn-by-turn directions for a seven-mile distance? That would be like you standing in Valley Bible Church's parking lot looking up at the sky and say, oh, Pastor Paul, I have the directions to your house. How are the stars going to help you do that? Now, if you're navigating in the vast ocean, looking at the stars is going to be very helpful. When you're trying to find a continent, yes, the stars are incredibly helpful to navigate. But when you need turn-by-turn directions within miles, how does a star give you those indicators? Now, there's been attempts for people to try to say, well, we have Jupiter and Saturn are probably getting close to each other. Maybe it's a comet or something like that, or, or maybe it's a, it's a supernova or, or something like that. I, I think all of that is very entertaining to speculate about. But honestly, I think if we read verse 9 very carefully, this is a miracle. We just have to take it as a miracle. Stars don't point to houses. They don't. Now, if you want my personal opinion, and this is all that it is is personal, I think it's an angel. I think it's an angelic being. Why do I believe that? Again, these guys are outsiders. They don't know the Old Testament very well. They may be familiar with it, but they, they, they don't know it very well because they don't know where the Messiah would be born. So if they saw a bright and shining light, what would they call that? In their vocabulary, probably all they would have is a star, and aren't angels very much in the birth story? We know this from the Gospel of Luke. These shepherds are out, and they see angels. But they probably have more Jewish categories to say, hey, that's an angel. I think what these guys are experiencing is a bright, glowing angel that's saying, look, guys, right there. Now, maybe he appears a little different than he did to the shepherds. But that's my best guess. I think trying to force this into some naturalistic kind of explanation is just unfair to the Scriptures. I think There's something supernatural here. This is is a miracle that the star is indicating this. So they follow this miracle, this miracle in the sky. Look at verse 10. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Again, I don't think this is just respecting royalty. I think there's more here, especially as we think of it in light of what Herod did, in light of what the people of Jerusalem did and what they will do. Then opening their treasures, they offered gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These are royal gifts, expensive stuff. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Christmas makes insiders outsiders and outsiders insiders. Matthew shows a very shocking story, a story of a great reversal, a story that shows us clarity, clarity to who is really desiring to worship and who really does not desire to worship. My prayer this Christmas is that God would give you the gift of clarity that he would do the same thing that he did here I think that's one of the greatest gifts we can receive is the gift of clarity knowing where we're at with God I think one of the greatest dangers is to fool ourselves to convince ourselves to be self-deceived I think it's one thing to fool others. I think it's a whole nother thing to fool ourselves. And I think this story here for us reminds us how important this clarity is and reminds us how Christmas can give us that kind of clarity. When all the attention is on Jesus, when all the songs are pointing to Jesus, when the Hallmark cards and the conversations mention Jesus more than ever before and any time on our calendar, I think it's a perfect time to know are we following Jesus or are we just giving him some attention? So here's my question to you. Are you an insider who's actually an outsider? Have you fooled others? Have you fooled yourself? Maybe from the vantage point of others, they would say, no, 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 Jesus Jesus is right in front of them. And and they're going in the same direction as Jesus. Maybe from your vantage point, you would say, no, Paul, Jesus is right in front of me, and and, and we're going in the same direction. I think this is a very important point. Because just because somebody's in front of you, And they're going in the same direction as you, doesn't mean you're following. We know this in the Bay Area. Just because somebody's in front of you, going in the same direction as you, doesn't mean that you're following them, just means you're in traffic. Think about it. When do you know you're truly following somebody? You know you're following them when the person in front of you takes a turn you didn't anticipate. A turn you weren't expecting, a turn you wouldn't have made, a turn maybe you disagree with, a turn you don't like. You know you're following when you take the same turn. See, the test of following is not when you agree, the test of following is when you disagree. So, how can you have clarity on if you're truly following Jesus? Ask yourself the question Are you following or are you just in traffic? Is your religion, your religiosity, your pursuit of God, is it just cultural? You're just going with the flow. Is it convenient? Well, it's just kind of what's expected of you. It, it's comfortable. It's the easier thing to do. It's the path of least resistance. Well, what happens when following Jesus and going in the direction of Jesus is no longer culturally appropriate? Or when culture doesn't applaud your following of Jesus? What happens when when going in the direction of Jesus is no longer convenient? What happens when going in the direction of Jesus is no longer comfortable? Then which way do you go? See, that's when you know you're truly following and not in traffic. So are you an insider who's actually an outsider? Herod, the people of Jerusalem, they looked like they were following. Every appearance of following was their culture. It was politically advantageous. It was comfortable. It was easy. But then a threat came. A threat came to their power. A threat came to their pride. They would have to surrender power. A new king is born. They have to yield their pride. He came to save and do what we could not do. And what was their response? No, Jesus, we cannot give up our power. No, Jesus, we will not yield our pride. You're a threat. They look like they were going in the same direction as God. But when he took a turn, they didn't turn. So what do you do when God asks you to do something that you don't like? You don't agree with something that's not easy or convenient or makes you look like a cultural outsider. What do you do? Do you follow him? If you follow him, then you know that you're a true insider. If you just stay on the road and go with everybody else but don't follow Jesus off on the turn, then you're an outsider. And my prayer is that you you would get the gift of clarity this Christmas because you need to know before it's too late. You don't want to be like those in Matthew chapter 8. Sons of the kingdom. Supposed sons of the kingdom that are left in outer darkness. Are you an insider that's actually an outsider? My prayer is that God would give you clarity this Christmas. Now let me ask you another question. Are you an outsider who wants to be an insider? Maybe you hear the story of the Magi and you think, no, that that's me. I, I can't explain what is drawing me to Jesus. I can't explain what's drawing me to God. I can't even really explain what drew me to watch this service. But I know something is going on. And maybe as mysterious as God using a star to lead these men to the birth of his son. Maybe you've had some strange conversations with your friends or family members. Maybe just the circumstances of your life have just made you start to think of spiritual things. And you can't necessarily put your finger on it. And maybe it's a little confusing to you, but you just feel like God is drawing you. And as irresistible and curious as that star was to these magi, so too this Christmas season for you is compelling you, drawing you, calling you right now. And your curiosity is piqued. And that's what's brought you here. I believe, if that's true, that God wants you to hear the true meaning of Christmas, the true value and significance of Christmas. The true meaning of Christmas is this we can be forgiven and restored. We can be forgiven and restored. See, all of us, all of us have moved away from God's design. God has has a design for every part of our lives, our our finances, our our, our friendships, uh, uh, the way we handle our neighbors, everything. God has a plan for all of that. And we've all moved away from God's design the Bible has a word for that. That's called sin. And when we move away from God's design, we move away from his blessing. We move away from a relationship with him and we end up in a land of brokenness. And we feel this brokenness all around us in our finances, in our friendships, in ourselves, in our sicknesses, in death, in divorce, in depression, in anger, in anxiety. We feel all this brokenness and we try to work our way around this, but we can't, we can't fix it. We can't forgive our own sin and we can't be restored back to God's design. So what does God do? God made Christmas. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. And in his son, Jesus Christ has given the gift that we so desperately need. And that's the gift of forgiveness and restoration. He calls us out of that brokenness. He tells us you cannot fix this problem on your own. I sent my son to fix the problem. He'll die on the cross for your sins. He'll take the penalty for your sins. He'll rise again. He'll extend to you the gift of forgiveness and say, be restored to God. And what's our response to that? How do we receive that forgiveness and that restoration to God? It's very simple. The Bible says faith. Faith. Faith means you trust in Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection as the only means of forgiveness and the only way to be restored back to God. And my prayer for you, if you feel like maybe you're an outsider, but you want to be an insider, you don't understand everything about Christianity, you don't get maybe even how to pray or where to start to read your Bible, but you know God is calling you. And you know you want to be restored to him. You know you want your sins forgiven. My prayer is that this Christmas you would come to faith in Jesus Christ, that you would trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. I'm going to pray a prayer just here in a moment. And I'm going to pray this prayer because if you want to make that decision to follow Jesus Christ for the first time, I kind of want to just hold your hand and walk with you through a prayer. And, And the words aren't magical, but they're deeply meaningful if they come from your heart. If you mean them, God will hear them. And God will forgive you of your sins. And he'll put you on a road to being completely restored to him. He'll start a relationship with you. He'll he'll bring you to himself. And one day you'll be fully with him, restored with him in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we love you we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would give the gift of clarity this Christmas. If there are any that are hearing this message, convince their insiders. Maybe they've convinced others that they're insiders. But maybe through this message, what they feel now is they've been found out. Not that others have pointed the finger, but Holy Spirit, maybe you have pointed it out to them. That they're not truly following you. Following you has is, is been an easy thing to do. Or, or maybe it's the family thing to do, but they've never truly given you their full devotion. Oh, Father, I pray you'd give that clarity. I pray those that receive that clarity would see it as a gift, not an insult. You're trying to draw them to yourself, to make the decision for themselves to follow you. Father, I pray you be with them right now. And Father, for those who want to take that step, that step of faith, of trusting in you, those that want their sins to be forgiven, those that want to be restored to you, maybe those that now see that they are outsiders when they thought they were insiders, and for those that thought themselves outsiders that really want to be insiders, I pray that, they, that, that both of those groups would see that faith in you is how sins are forgiven and how one can be restored. So if you're listening to this and you want to take that step, step toward Jesus, a step of faith, you can pray a prayer like this. Just between you and God you could say something like this. Just very simply, you can say, Father, Father, I see. I see I need your forgiveness. I see that I've sinned against you. I've broken your rules, and I'm sorry. I see that you provided, provided the gift that gives me forgiveness. If you paid for my sin, you've given me a path to be restored to you I see that you've done this in your son, Jesus Christ, in his death and his resurrection. So today I place my faith in Jesus, in the God-man, the one crucified, the one who was risen from the grave. Today I commit my life to following him. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. I want you to know if you prayed that prayer, And you took that step of faith. We are delighted. We are excited. We're more excited about that than any Christmas present any of us could ever receive. We want to walk with you. We want to join you in your Christian walk. We want to get a Bible in your hand if you don't have one. We want to show you how to read it. We want to talk to you about what it means to grow as a Christian. So please, please, if you made that decision please reach out to us very easily on our website at valleybible.org where you're viewing this or you could call the church office. We would be delighted to have that conversation. Please reach out to us, any of our pastors, any email address on our website. If you put in there, I made that decision, trust me, we will reach out to you and we will walk with you on this new and awesome journey. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next Sunday.